Well, we're continuing in Philippians chapter 2. This morning we're going to be in verses 5 through 8. One of the fascinating things about God's Word is not just the fact that it's God-breathed, although it is. It's the inspired Word of God, breathed out by Him. But one of the fascinating things about His Word is that God has revealed His truth and wisdom to us in many ways in paradoxical form. In paradoxical form. Think about verses like 2 Corinthians 12.10, which says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Or Paul in Philippians 3.7 who said, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Now what is a paradox? People often think that a paradox is a contradiction. But a paradox is, is actually a statement that contains two truths, which at first glance seem to be incompatible. Two truths which at first glance seem to be incompatible. And to the world, these paradoxes that we read in Scripture seem to be foolish. Like, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's foolishness to the world. Why would anyone want to be weak? But it's actually true wisdom that's given to us from God. A psychiatrist once said, the greatest secret of mental health comes down to us in these words. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will save it. The psychiatrist added, I forget who said that, but it's a great truth. I'll tell you who said that. Jesus said that. It came from the mouth of God. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 17.33, Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. But Christ didn't just vocalize this principle with his words. He actually modeled this for us. He illustrated it for us in his life. And that's what we're going to see in our passage here in Philippians 2. So if you haven't opened your Bible... I would encourage you to open it to Philippians 2 and follow along as I read our passage beginning in verse 5. Paul says this, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men." Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this passage that we have before us here is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. This passage is rich in theology. Rich in theology, and it gives us magnificent doctrine about Christ. That would be Christology. Now oftentimes we read this passage in light of the doctrinal truths that it reveals to us about Christ. As we see doctrines in here like the deity of Christ. We see the doctrine known as the kenosis, or the emptying of Christ. We see the death of Christ. And we even see the exaltation of Christ in verses 9-11. through 11. This is rich Christology. Rich doctrine. That's revealed to us in this passage. But as we look at this passage, we have to understand the context. We must understand the context in which this passage is given to us. And what is the context here? What is it that Paul has been telling us about in verses 1 through 4. He's been talking to us about unity in the body of Christ, right? That's the context. That's the subject 
In fact, in verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, by being unified. We're to be unified in the body of Christ. But how is that to be done? Well, the key is found in verse 3. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. The key here that we talked about last time is what? Humility. Humility. And that's the context in which Paul writes to us verses 5 through 8. That's the context. In fact, all of verses 6 through 11 should be taken together as one passage as many scholars believe that these verses are actually a hymn that Paul wrote. This is a hymn. Verses 6 through 11 are a hymn. In fact, in some Bible translations, you'll see verses 6 through 11 indented and formatted like you would see a psalm format. If you have the NIV or the Holman Christian Standard or the Net Bible, you'll see it there in your Bible indented and formatted like a psalm. Why did the translators do that? Because this is a hymn. It's a hymn. They're telling us that this is a hymn that Paul wrote. That in the midst of his exhortation to the church to be unified through humility, he gives us the supreme model of humility, and he gives us this hymn to tell us of the greatest model of all time and what it means to be humble. And he conveys it to us in a hymn. Now, there's debate among scholars as to who wrote this hymn. Did Paul write this, or did someone else write this? And then Paul just took what somebody else wrote and placed it in his letter. Well, whatever that answer is, what we do know is that Paul was moved along by the Holy Spirit, right? He was moved along by the Holy Spirit. Whether he was writing someone else's hymn about Christ, or whether he was writing his own hymn about Christ, it's exactly what God wanted Paul to write. It's the inspired Word of God. And what he wrote down as the inspired Word of God has been given for us to know today. And so Paul gives us this inspired hymn. Now, as Paul wrote this hymn and gave this hymn to the early church, he would have given this hymn to be sung in the early church. That is, the early church would have taken this as a hymn and they would have sung these words out. It would have been something that they would have declared. Remember, at this time, the church had only the Old Testament, right? The early church had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. It was being written at this time. As Paul is even writing this hymn to the church, what do they have? They have the Old Testament, which means what would they have sung? The Psalms. The early church would have sung the Psalms. But Paul gives them a new song to sing. Just as Psalm 98 verse 1 says, we read it this morning, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. Or Psalm 96 verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Paul writes a new song to the church to be sung about the Lord and to sing it unto the Lord. And that's what the early church would have done. And so this hymn here is what we would call, what has been called, and what we do call, the Christ hymn. This is called the Christ hymn. That's why you'll see that the title of this sermon in your bulletin is titled, The Christ Hymn, The Glorious Illustration. It's because, as we look at the first part of this hymn in verses 5-8, through eight, we're going to see the glorious illustration, the wonderful model of humility. For us. And so, as we set the context for this, this Sunday, this morning, we're going to look 
at Christ as the glorious illustration of humility. And then next Sunday, we're going to take this same passage and we're going to look at the theology that's contained in this passage. Because there's rich, deep theology that is contained here in this hymn. So as we look at verses 5 through 8 this morning, we're going to break it down into two simple points. Two simple points. The first point is what we'll call the mandate. The mandate. And then second, we'll look at the model. The mandate and the model. So let's look first at the mandate. Look at verse 5 and notice what Paul says there. He says, have this attitude in yourselves. Stop right there. Now we need to ask the question as we read this, have this attitude in yourselves, we need to ask the question, what attitude are you talking about, Paul? What is this attitude that you're talking about? Well, the attitude that he just told us back in verses 3 and 4. What is the attitude that we saw back there? That we need to put off selfishness and empty conceit, and we need to put on humility. That's the attitude that we need to have. And that's what Paul is calling for the church to have. We must have humility. Every one of us. Paul is calling for us to have this attitude in ourselves. Now we've seen this word attitude before in Philippians 2. It just wasn't translated as attitude. It's the Greek word phroneo. Phroneo. In verse 2 it's translated as the word mind. Notice what Paul says there in verse 2, being of the same mind. That's the exact same word as attitude in verse 5 there. Then at the end of verse 2, he says intent on one purpose. That word purpose there means having one thought. It's the same Greek word, phroneo. But here, this Greek word is translated in verse 5 as attitude, and it means to think or develop an attitude based upon careful thought. That is, you and I are supposed to have careful thought and have this attitude then within us as we think about the attitude of Christ. It has to do with our mind. It has to do with our thinking. One commentator says, this conveys not just the individual thoughts a believer is to entertain, but how they think and reason through life, relationships, temptations, and opportunities. It's how we are to think and reason through our lives. That's what's conveyed here. We must aim for more than just control of our individual thoughts, but we must develop a Christian mind. You hear that, church? We must develop a Christian mind, not just to have control over our individual thoughts, because we can do that. Right? We can control our thoughts. But we must develop a Christian mind. We must pursue the mind of Christ. And we do this by letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us, as we saw in Colossians 3.16. We must be Bible thinkers. We must be Bible thinkers. And we must have our minds controlled by the Word of God. Notice what Paul says about this attitude. It's not just something that you should have every once in a while, but you should have this, notice he says there, in yourselves. You must have this attitude in yourselves. And what Paul is specifically talking about here is that you should have this among yourselves. Within the church as believers, you must have this always continually among yourselves. Collectively, as the church of Christ, we must always have the attitude of humility among us. How can we have this attitude collectively? Well, it starts first with each one of us individually, right? It starts with us individually. In order to have collectively a unified mind, a mind of humility, we must first have it individually. And as we have this attitude individually in ourselves, we will then have it collectively. 
And so that there is the mandate. That's the mandate that Paul gives to us. We must have the attitude of humility in us all the time as, regard, as we regard one another as more important than ourselves. That's what Paul is calling for. Let's look at our second point, point number two, the model. The model. And in this, we're going to see both the attitude and the actions that Christ modeled for us. He's the perfect model. He's the model that we should look to. He's the the illustration of what it means to have this attitude of humility in ourselves. Notice Paul goes on in verse 5 and he says this, which was also in Christ Jesus. This attitude that was in Christ Jesus. That is to say, the attitude of humility and considering others as more important than yourselves was in Christ. It's the attitude that he had. That was his thinking. That's how Christ thought. And it is his thinking that we should then pattern our thinking after. As we look to him as our model. He's the greatest model. The ultimate illustration of what it means to be humble and to consider others as more important than ourselves. It's Christ. And Paul wants to demonstrate that for us as he breaks into this glorious hymn in verse 6. But before we break into this hymn, I want you to be aware of the magnificence of this hymn. I want you to be aware of this and understand that as we work through this, this is such a glorious and magnificent hymn. As we work our way through verses 6 through 8, we're essentially going to be working our way from the peak of a mountaintop to the lowest valley. From the loftiest throne in all of the universe to a despised and detestable cross. From the highest place in heaven to the lowest place on earth. And we're going to see the sovereign of all creation who became a servant to those whom he created. Church, this is magnificent. This is a glorious hymn. It is a rich text that we must take and put into our hearts as we study this. And as we look at this hymn, it's like going down a staircase. We're going to start at the top and we're going to work our way down. So let's begin where Paul begins all the way at the very top. And notice what he says there in verse 6. He says, Who, although he existed in the form of of God. Notice what Paul is saying here. He begins by making it very clear that Jesus is God. That's what he's declaring to us. It's a statement of his deity that Jesus is God. And what Paul is saying here is that before the incarnation in eternity past, Christ existed in the form of God. This means that from all eternity past, before His incarnation, Christ pre-existed as God. He has always been God. And there was not a moment where Christ was not God. And this is the highest place that any being could be, right? To be God. There is no higher place to be. There is no higher being in the heavens and the earth than God Himself. And this is what Paul is wanting to emphasize for us. He wants to show how high and lifted up Christ is. He wants to show us the position from which Christ came when He humbled Himself. 
That he existed in the form of God, meaning he was eternally existing in the form of God. And because he existed in the form of God, he therefore had equality with God because he was God. He's on the throne of God. It's the highest and loftiest place that anyone could be. But, Paul then begins to work his way down from this high and lofty place. Notice the second half of verse 6. He says, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying here that Christ has and always had equality with God. That's what he's declaring here. Again, this is a statement of his deity. That Jesus Christ is God. Notice this statement. Did not regard equality with God. Which implies what? That he has equality with God. But that's what Paul is telling us here. That Jesus Christ is God. He had equality with God. In fact, isn't this what Jesus declared to us? Listen to John 17, 5. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory that Christ had with the Father. Why? Because He's equal with the Father. Or John 10, 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. One. Jesus declared that, I and the Father are one, and the Jews picked up stones to throw at Jesus. Why? Well, they answered him and said in John 10.33, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Did Jesus declare himself to be God? Yes, he did. You'll hear that from people, ah, Jesus never said he was God. Yes, he did. Why do you think the Jews picked up stones to throw at him? They understood. They knew. Jesus is making a claim of deity. That he's God. John 5.18 says this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is God. He's equal with God. And yet he did not regard that equality a thing to be grasped. Now what does this mean? What is Paul telling us here in this hymn? What is he saying that Christ did not regard that equality a thing to be grasped? Well, it doesn't mean that he gave up that equality with God. Because he didn't. Jesus never gave up his equality with God. He always had equality with God, both in his eternal pre-existence and in his incarnation. He was always equal with God. He never gave that up. It simply means this. This is what Paul means. It means this. Because he was God, equal with the Father, he had all the divine privileges as God. He's the sovereign, supreme over all. And he had the divine privileges as God, but he would not hold on to those or clutch those or grasp those. But he was willing to let go of those privileges if it meant serving others. One commentator says it this way, the point is that Christ did not use his equality with God in order to snatch or gain power and dominion. And even though he had every right to that power and every right to that dominion as God because he was equal with God, he did not grasp onto that or cling onto that. 
Another commentator says it this way, he did not consider being God grounds for getting, but for giving. And that was the attitude of Christ. That's his attitude. That was the thinking of Christ. He willingly gave up what he had access to in order that he might serve others. And that's the same attitude and the same thinking that Paul is calling us to have. To lay down any privilege that we have in order that we might serve others. That's the attitude of Christ. Which is exactly what we continue to see in Christ as we go a little bit lower down the staircase and we see the actions then of Christ. Look at verse 7. Notice what he says there. But emptied himself. Christ emptied himself. The word empty there is a verb in the Greek, meaning this is an action. That Christ did the action of emptying himself. After seeing the mind or the thinking of Christ in verse 6, Paul turns to the actions that demonstrate his humility. And this church here should shock us if we really think about this. This should shock our minds. Because these actions are what Christ did as He humbled Himself so that He might save us. And it should shock us because we usually wouldn't expect someone like this or something like this from one who was so high and lofty and lifted up. Right? We live in a world where the high and the lofty and the lifted up, they stay there, right? And they want to be there. They're not willing to humble themselves and come and live with the common people. But Jesus, who was the highest and loftiest and the most lifted up, being God Himself, did this. Took these actions. And what did He do? He emptied Himself. Now we might ask, what did He empty Himself of? Answer, He didn't empty Himself of anything. He didn't empty Himself of anything. Not in the sense of, of pouring out or of giving something away. He for sure did not empty himself of his deity. He didn't stop being God when he took upon flesh. He always was God for all of eternity. And when he took upon flesh, he still was God. He was God in the flesh. He couldn't empty himself of his deity. He couldn't do that because it would be impossible for God to do this. God cannot empty himself of his deity. It's impossible. So Christ didn't do that. In fact, He even claimed to be God while on earth. John 14.9, He told His disciple Philip, He who has seen Me has seen who? The Father. He who has seen Me has seen the Father. And then He said in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? What's Jesus saying there? He's making a claim to His deity. That He's God. And so He did not empty Himself of His deity. So what does it mean that He emptied Himself? Well, this word empty in the Greek is the word kanao. Which is where we get kenosis from. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. The kenosis of Christ. This word kanao, empty, means to make void, to nullify, or to make of no effect. And he emptied himself not of his deity or even his attributes as God, but he voluntarily yielded the independent exercise of his divine attributes to the will of his heavenly Father. 
That is, he had access to all of the divine attributes as God, and yet he voluntarily yielded the independent exercise of his divine attributes to the will of the Father. We can say that this was a self-renunciation. He didn't empty himself in the sense that he gave anything away. That's not what Jesus did. Again, we'll get into this more next week, but we can simply say that Christ did not pour anything out of himself. In fact, the, the King James Version translates it this way and says it well. It says, He made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. He, didn't, he did not get rid of anything but he made himself of no reputation. That's what it means here, the emptying of Christ. What did he do? We'll look at the next part of verse 7. How did he empty himself? Well, notice he says, taking the form of a bondservant. Taking the form of a bondservant. This is now an explanation of his emptying. Paul is explaining to us here that he took the form of a bondservant. Notice that word taking there. What this means is that Christ's emptying consisted of taking, not divesting or giving away. But his emptying was taking. One way that we could say this is that it was an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. You get that? It's an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. Oftentimes we think of emptying like you empty something. You get rid of it. You subtract it, right? That's not Christ. His emptying was not getting rid of anything. His emptying was adding. Addition. And what did he add? Well, he says there he took the form of a bondservant. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is enthroned above all, the creator of this world, took upon himself the form of a bondservant. That's his emptying. His emptying was an addition. Not a subtraction. He didn't get rid of his deity. He didn't get rid of his attributes as God. He took upon himself flesh and became one of us. The king of the universe did that. That's his emptying. Christ, the creator of all things, emptied himself by taking on or adding a human nature. It's emptying by addition, not by subtraction. The God of all creation, who has always existed, took on a human nature like you and like me in order to come and save us. That's the ultimate act of humility, right? That's his emptying. Paul says he took the form of a bondservant. That word bondservant there in the Greek is the word doulos. And it means slave. He took upon himself the form of a slave. It's what Jesus told us in Mark 10.45, or even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many he became a slave. A slave was one who voluntarily gave himself up to the will of another. And Christ voluntarily gave himself up to the will of the Father. And he did this when he took on a human nature. He was totally and completely submitted to the will of the Father. That's why he prayed in the garden, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but what? 
Yours be done. He was a slave. A slave. Servant of the Father. Submitted to the will of the Father so that He might come and save us. That term slave there, this term became a badge of honor in the early church. It's a badge of honor. When's the last time you heard somebody say, I'm a slave of Christ? (laughs) Maybe we should start saying that. It's a badge of honor. What are you, a Christian? No, I'm a slave of Christ. (laughs) Paul often refers to himself in his letters as a slave of Christ, right? What is that? Show shows humility. Shows humility. It was an act of humility for Christ to take the form of a slave. To take on a human nature and submit Himself to the will of the Father. But it goes lower than that. He goes even lower. Look at verse 7. Again, he says, in being made in the likeness of men. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus was so much like a man that they didn't even recognize him as God, right? They didn't recognize him as God. They picked up stones to throw at him because he declared himself to be God. But he was made in the likeness of men. It's sad in one sense that they wouldn't recognize Him as God because it means they didn't know Him as their Savior, right? But why would they see Him as a man? Because Jesus was fully man. He's fully man and He had a human nature. And being fully human meant that He became a man and He felt the results of the fall, although he himself was completely sinless. Think about this, church. Christ became a man and he felt the results of the fall, even though he was completely sinless. He was hungry, right? He got tired. He had pain. He felt suffering. He wept. As the perfect spotless Lamb of God, He felt the effects of the fall, although He was without sin. In fact, as a man, He was poor. Think about His birth. Where was He born? In a manger. The king of the universe, the creator of it all, was born in a manger. He had no place to lay his head. He says in Matthew 8 20, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was essentially homeless. Our Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was a poor homeless man. Talk about humility. He was a man who felt the pain that we as fallen humanity feel. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, he even experienced the worst result of the fall. What does this mean here? It means he's so identified with men that they didn't know that he was anything other than a man being made in the likeness of men. And so as Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he became a man. 
like us. He took on a human nature. That's the point. He's fully human. Which for God to become a human is an amazing act of humility. Not only was he made in the likeness of men, but look at the beginning of verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. That is, they also saw him as a man. His appearance wasn't glowing with some kind of halo above his head everywhere he walked. <laughs> you see those, right, on stained glass windows? A picture of Jesus, and there's a, there's a halo above his head. Now, that's not how he appeared when he was walking on the earth. He appeared as a man. He didn't even have his face shining like Moses did when he came down from, the Mount, uh, from Mount Sinai. You remember that? Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and what do they do? You must veil your face. It's glowing. Not Jesus. His appearance was that of a man. He took on a human nature like ours. And he looked like a man. And he dressed like a man. And when people saw him, they would even identify him as a man. In fact, many saw him as a baby. Then they saw him as a young boy and a teenage boy. And then growing up as a man. Growing and living just as other men do. The God who existed from all of eternity took on a human nature like ours. Except there was one thing that was different about Him. He was without sin. Which is what makes the rest of verse 8 so magnificent church verse 8 is so magnificent as christ goes even lower look at what it says there he did what humbled himself he humbled himself paul just told us that he was made in the likeness of man and that he was found in appearance in the appearance of a man but there was another act of humility that Christ did. He humbled Himself. That word humble in the Greek is another verb. It's an action that Jesus took. And what He did in His humility. He didn't just have an attitude of humility, but His actions even showed it. And in this section here, Christ went even lower. Look again at what it says in verse 8. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? Of death. Of death. Christ, the Creator of the universe, was obedient to the will of the Father all the way to the point of death. This is not talking about all the way up to the point of death as if he was right at the point of death and then stopped and he didn't die. But he, the sinless man, the God-man who was fully God and fully man, submitted himself to the will of the Father and he died. And he experienced something that was the result of the fall, although he was sinless. Death is the result of the fall, right? The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 And the sinless, spotless man who's the creator of of the universe experienced death. 
as an act of humility to save us. There's no greater act of humility than his act of death. But notice this. His death wasn't just any death. He gets to the lowest of the lows. Notice what Paul says there. The end of verse 8. Even death on a what? On a cross. Death on a cross. This was not only the most torturous of all deaths, but to the Jews, it was the most shameful way to die. As they would hang you on a cross, in the open public for all to see, naked and suffering, a torturous death. And you might think, well, what made his death any different than the guys that were next to him? Because when Jesus was dying on that cross, he took upon himself the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Those men didn't take it. He took it. It was the worst of all deaths. For him to go and hang on a tree and die for us. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the Jews would have walked by and they would have said, cursed is that man. And he hung on that cross. And he said, Father, I love you. And I love all of those in whom you will draw unto me. This is for them. One commentator says the cross was the bottom rung in the ladder from the throne of God. And Christ submitted Himself to the worst of physical deaths. And in so doing, bore the wrath of God for the sins of all who would believe in Him. And yet He committed not a single sin. He was the spotless Lamb of God who humbled Himself and with humility of mind came to serve us what a great paradox the king of the universe humbled himself to the lowest depths to save us in closing I want to read to you the words of the, the great Puritan Thomas Watson on the humility of Christ and even Reflecting on our own hearts and our own humility. He said this. Do you see Christ humbling himself? And are you so proud? It is the humble saint who is Christ's picture. Christians, do not be proud of your fine feathers. Have you an estate? Do not be proud. The earth you tread on is richer than you. It has mines of gold and silver in its depths. Have you beauty? Do not be proud. It is but water mingled with dirt. Have you skill and abilities? Be humble. Lucifer has more knowledge than you. Have you grace? Be humble. It is not of your own making. 
It was given to you by God. You have more sin than grace. More spots than beauty. Oh, look on Christ. This rare pattern of humility. And be humbled. It's a sad sight to see God humbling Himself and a man exalting Himself. To see a humble Savior and a proud sinner. Be like Christ in grace and humility. Father, we thank You for the humility of Christ. And the low, low, low depths that He went to to save sinners like us. Father, may we continue to look to Christ who is the model of humility. Father, may You work in our hearts and help us to see the humility of Christ and may that motivate us and drive us to be humble in mind and consider others as more important than ourselves. Father, we thank You for the humility of our Savior, the Creator of the universe, to become a man like us and to go to the worst of all deaths, to die on a cross and be the sacrifice for our sins. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know You this morning, pray that You would grant them repentance and faith in Christ, that they would recognize their sin and their need for a Savior, and that they would throw themselves at the mercy of Christ. And that You, God, would save them. And that You would get all of the glory for it. Father, may this Word impact our hearts as we humbly serve one another. And may we continually be unified as we look to Christ with an attitude of humility. And may our actions follow that as we serve one another. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.